Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. Well, John, I'm delighted to be able to visit you here in Bakewell and see you in your natural habitat. Um, having met you first in Yorkshire, uh, when you'd gone off piste for a short while. Um, um, this is where you meditate. Where, you, where do you actually do it? Just over there, that seat there. I've been meditating there for, for nearly 25 years. Twice a day I come up here, morning and evening. When the church is empty, I have my own keys, so I let myself in. And this is where I sit very often, on my own, just in the cold, dark church. Obviously you find it helpful to do it here, otherwise you could do it at home. Not really, not particularly. Uh, Rupert, I was in Russia, I lived several years in Russia, and while I was there, I seemed to receive a sort of instruction to go and meditate, to go and pray rather, in a certain building which was then being uh, kind of turned into a church. You may know there'd been uh, nearly a hundred years of persecution of religion in Russia, and it was almost non-existent. Ninety percent of the churches had been, had been uh, either ruined or turned into something else. And religion was just beginning to come back to life again. It was really quite an exciting time. that People were discovering the old faith. And I went to this sort of disused warehouse place where they had a few icons and were beginning to hold services there and I would just stand in a corner and pray. And uh, I was about 60 years old then and uh, really looking for something to do. And I immediately realized that to pray like this was what I most wanted and was able to do. It brought, it gave a whole new meaning to my life. And when I came back to England, I continued doing it here. Well, it's wonderful that you discovered this in Russia. Um, I myself lived in India for seven years, and I was enormously impressed in India with the sense of the sacred everywhere. In every village, there's a temple, and there are holy trees, and even termite mounds are holy and have people go and light joysticks by them, and, and even snake holes. And there's a sense of which everything is sacred. And when you visit a village there, you go to the temple or the holy tree to connect with the holy place. And when I got back to England, I realized that actually you can do the same here. Um, and this, for me, was a revelation. You know, I'd spent years in England as an atheist and feeling quite disconnected from this tradition. And now I think that our churches, our ancient churches and cathedrals, are some of the most wonderful things in England. And I love visiting them. And uh, I also, like you, find it helpful to pray in them, although I'm a mere amateur compared with you. 
<laughs> I wouldn't say that, but but I'm but but yes, I I I also was thrilled in 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 Russia, notwithstanding uh, nearly a hundred years of of materialistic communism, to to discover this this so so deeply etched um, reverence for nature, and the sense that everything was alive. For example, bread, bread is. The Russian word for bread is almost the same as for life. And uh, the tradition that the man of the household would always cut the bread, would hold a loaf of bread next to his heart and cut it with a knife, because it has this heart connection. Wheat, bread, the bread of life. Every Russian meal is eaten with a piece of bread in one hand and a fork in the other. This is how you eat. Mm. And... Uh, and, and this reverence for uh, for animal life and nature and trees it's it, it's uh, it's endured all those that that brutalizing effect of communism and and is i was so thrilled to discover it and i couldn't agree more that that the tradition is 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 alive in in england and thank god so many young people these days are beginning to rediscover it well, I think one of the things that perhaps still hasn't been fully rediscovered is just how wonderful our churches are and how peaceful they are to go to and to sit in. And um, I think your example of just sitting quietly in a church is a wonderful example because we can sit at home. I mean, I meditate at home, but I make a point of going to our parish church quite regularly to pray in the church when it's when there's no one there in Hampstead. And I find it particularly powerful to do that. And I also, um, my favorite places in England are cathedrals. And I, I, the, uh, there's one day pilgrimages to cathedrals are one of my favorite things. You walk five or six miles from a village through the fields to a cathedral. And arriving there after a walk makes it even more special. Well, again, amen to all that. I like to think that I'm, I'm sitting here where a thousand years of prayer have taken place. And even long before that, even before, long before this church was built, it's, Bakewell was a place of prehistoric settlement. And this is built on a natural promontory of rock overlooking the valley, where I, even the dinosaurs would have lain here and chewed their cud and thought about life, wouldn't they? I'm sure it's it always from the very, it's been a place of reflection and rest and looking out over the valley. Well, I'd, that's a feature I like very much about ancient churches in England because many of them were pre-Christian holy places. Some of them have ancient yew trees that were a thousand years old when the church was built. And in Wales, it's particularly clear because they had these circular churchyards, which were places of gathering and of burial, um, long before Christianity. And then the churches were built in these holy places. So there's this sense of continuity, uh, which I find, um, like you do, uh, really helpful. It gives the sense that what one's doing is not just purely individual, just me doing something I individually like, but something that's in a long tradition, and that, for me, makes it more powerful. 
And and for me also, I live uh, down the hill in a in a little flat there. It's about a quarter of an hour walk for me every morning, early in the morning, before dawn. I come up here and have to climb the hill um, with my two sticks now. <laughs> and I lean on a tombstone outside the door, and I just lean back and I look up at the stars feel my, my brotherhood with the stars and the moon and the weather and uh, just that lovely sense of being absorbed into the infinite before I open the door and come into the church. Mm. And uh, sitting here, again, this sense of connection outside because the the rain and the wind bef- uh, sound on the roof, so so they companion so often my, my times here. Yes, I love all that. Mm. And then walking back again afterwards, especially in winter, within the, in the night, because it's a, quite a long walk through the churchyard with the old tombs, feeling that all these generations of people that have done the same thing, yes. that, I, that I will take my place amongst them. In terms of um, tradition and those who've gone before, I wonder whether you think of uh, which St. John you think of as your, for your name day, and as your patron saint? <laughs> they were always asking that question in Russia. <laughs> and and they, they would ask me, uh, when I said I didn't know, they'd say, when is your birthday? <laughs> and, well, fortunately, my birthday is, I think, near, I think St. John the Evangelist, because he's a rather special saint, has two saints' days in Russia, <laughs> and one of them is, is next to my birthday, so they usually attach me to that one. But I go, but... Uh, but I wasn't really very much into saints. It was, really, I was hardly aware of them before I went to Russia. But but Russia's immensely. Uh, Russia has a saint in every village, just about, and all, there's a saint for every possible uh, human situation, human state of mind. Yes. <laughs> they're they're much utilised. We've rather forgotten about saints, haven't we, in England? To our loss, I think. Well, I'm rather keen on them myself, and and. Um here in Bakewell Parish Church, you're quite well provided for because it's the Church of All Saints. So, <laughs> I mean, you've got the lot here, um, so you don't have to make any invidious choices. Um, uh, you can just benefit, bathe in the glory of the blessed company of the saints, um, all of them collectively. Well, yes, but I think something is also rather lost because... Because when you can closely relate to a saint, um, you know, it becomes like a member of the family, really. And if you have a little icon of a saint in your room, then it's, it's like a, it's like one of the ancestors, one, one of, yes. Again, in Russia, it's very normal practice to have a little corner with all the various saints that the family is connected with, and, and people just uh, pay their respects to it when they come into the room. But well, they are sort of ancestors, aren't they? Well, exactly they are. And, and that, I remember when I first went up to Lindisfarne in, in, uh, in uh, Northumberland, uh, I'd never heard of St. Cuthbert before then, but I felt an immensely um, powerful connection with something. I remember I was on the little island when... when uh, not never, I'd never heard of him but before, but, but apparently this was where he went, I learnt later. I remember just just suddenly breaking into sobs there, not knowing why. 
And then later I learnt about this man. And my goodness, if ever there was a saint that echoed my own attitudes towards life, he was him. He became my pin-up boy when I was a, a young man in my early 20s. I felt such a sense of companionship. I wasn't so alone in life. He also did just love the same things as I did. And, uh, and, uh, and then gradually other saints sort of came within my orbit. I found it most helpful to to have this 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 availability of kindred spirits, mm. someone to suit almost every mood and every temperament that that truly are existent real people that you can read about and uh, and connect with yes I'm, I totally believe in that. Mm. Yes, well, me too. And I think that, you know, they are saints, after all, are dead people. And they're, they're people who were people, like our ancestors were people. But they're special dead people in the sense that they're perhaps more connected with the spiritual than most. And I think act as a kind of bridge or connection. Like you, I think that the I, I have saints who are particularly special for me. I mean, actually, St. Cuthbert's one of them. And partly, I came to appreciate St. Cuthbert like you did, uh, you know, later, well, in my 20s or 30s, when I learned about his closeness to nature and part of this Celtic tradition. Um, but I then realized that actually I was already under his patronage because I went to school, a boarding school, a workshop college, which is actually called officially St. Cuthbert's College, and uh, it's dedicated to St. Cuthbert. And um, my hometown, Newark, where I've come from today, um, the patron saint is St. Mary Magdalene, who's one of my very favorite saints. And our parish church in Hampstead is called the Parish Church of St. John at Hampstead. One reason I asked you about which St. John, because it's a permanent debate in Hampstead Parish Church, which St. John, they're not quite sure. <laughs> and I personally like John the Baptist because I think John the Baptist was um, really involved in powerful rites of passage. Basically, I think he was a drowner. And I think he held people under in the Jordan just long enough to induce a near-death experience by drowning. And as you know, people who've had near-death experiences often say their lives totally changed. They've gone out of their body. They've gone into a totally different realm full of joy and light and meet dead people who are, now, who are gloriously resplendent with light. And they love being there, but they have to come back because it's only a near-death experience. And many of them have their lives changed by this. They've died and they've been born again. Now, that's exactly what... John the Baptist was doing to people. We know he was holding them underwater, not sprinkling them with water at a font. He was actually holding them underwater by total immersion. Um, they were transformed by this process. And it's usually considered to be just symbolic. But my view is, why would you do something that's just symbolic when just for another minute or two underwater you could have the real thing, a near-death experience? And I think our Lord had that at the baptism, which is when the first moment of the revelation to him of his um, divine affinity was 
according to the account in the New Testament. So I think St. John the Baptist was an initiator who was leading people through a life-transforming rite of passage. Well, why, why not? And uh, anyway, I can echo that through my own experience of meditation, which really is like a dying. I always thought of it as like a death, because you leave behind your body and your mind, and you discover what's another realm where there's certainly no space, no time. It's timeless. So, um, uh, talking about whether saints are alive or dead, you realize they're more alive than we are. That it's this mortality of ours that is the death. And we are called into real life, which is not this life, which is only of temporary duration. And the saints are, are our encouragement that, that real life awaits us. Another feature of patron saints that I particularly like is that, you know, in all traditional societies, and like in Tibet and like in Greek and the Roman world, they had tutelary deities, protector spirits of a place. Each place had its protector spirits um, and who looked after people who were there. And actually, the fact that every parish in, in England um, has a parish church, and each parish church has a dedication to a saint, or in this case, all saints. Um, in some cases, Christ church, but nearly all of them are saints. And it means that each town or village has a tutelary saint, uh, a protector saint. How wonderful if we could rediscover the reality of, of this. And... Uh... This, I remember, was the excitement of when I learned to meditate when I was 26 years old, nearly 60 years ago, and suddenly realized that there's this other dimension that isn't normally recognized in life, body, mind, and spirit. And that when you discover the reality of spirit, suddenly it makes sense of almost everything else. Suddenly, saints... Um, all the the, the, the the hard to understand bits of the Bible suddenly come into meaning. You understand it. You get the point. You see that this kingdom of God that they talk about, it isn't just some nebula, something somewhere, maybe. It's actually in the realizable here and now, in this invisible dimension of spirit, which is eternal life here and now accessible to anyone that that strives towards it. And it's what Jesus made the first thing of his teaching, didn't he? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And do you think then that the kingdom of God that he was talking about is this direct experience that you're talking about? Why not? I don't know any other one, but no one's ever been able to persuade me otherwise. Well, I suppose the, the, the thought that comes into my mind is that the kingdom of God is collective. Kingdoms don't just have one person in them, the king. They're, they're collective. And a lot of Jesus' message is not just about individuals, but also about our relationships. Well, the, 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 this, this invisible presence, this presence of spirit, it contains not only you, me, and, and a couple of other people. It contains the whole world, doesn't it? Well, yes. What is not contained in it? No, no, it's not confined to the church. But 
I think there's a tendency in modern spirituality for people to have a hyper-individualistic view that meditation's all about me. And I think this must be about more than me. Well, of course, it begins like that. You know, people think they can just read a book, start meditating, and, and go to a retreat or something, and then bingo, that's it. My dear, I've been meditating for 60 years, and I'm still a child. I'm still learning. It's a journey from the finite to the infinite, and where does it end? And all the time, one's growing into ever greater realization of what it's all about. Yes, of course, it begins with me and what's in it for me, making me a better me. <laughs> and gradually, 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 this hard nut has to <laughs> gradually open up. And it's a lifetime's work. And as I say, I'm still learning. I'm still a little boy in a grey beard. <laughs> a child, a spiritual infant. Yes, I'm not sure. Do you know, I'm never quite sure. It's one of these sort of funny questions, isn't it? That uh, I remember saying to my uh, saying to my mother as a little boy, "Well, if all the dead people go to heaven, where do they all sit? There must be so many of them." But, and of course, and that's how we think at that age, isn't it? You can't imagine that we're all really. It all merges into one. The, the, the unity, in fact, in this world we live in a world of separations, so there are millions of everything. In the real world, there's just one, there's no division, no separation. So um, it all comes together <laughs> in the great I am. <laughs> yes, well, it makes sense to me, but we do have a slight problem with some religious Im imagery, like in the Creed, where it says, Jesus Christ sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. That does imply that people sit down and that they're located. Uh, even Jesus has his place, his, his, his actual chair or throne, um, which I always find a very... I know it's metaphorical, and I know they used extremely concrete metaphors, but... It's not a terribly helpful image for the kind of vision that you're putting forward. No, I, I found it terribly difficult as a young man and, uh, and uh, rather gave up on it. Um, rather went my own way. Mm. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who shoot me down on what I say. Um, but all I can offer is my own experience. Oh, I think it makes total sense. And, and actually, it wasn't Jesus who said um, he'd sit at the right hand of God the Father. It was his followers who said that. And um, he, his own teachings don't seem to me to... It, I mean, he says, in our Father's house are many mansions. He, certainly the idea it's spacious, it accommodates lots of different uh, post-death states, etc. Yes, it's a tendency of man, isn't it, to want to always somehow condense the, the infinite into his own brain box. He always wants to uh, put his, his names and forms on the name, nameless and formless. I'm a great believer in silence. I often think the, the less I don't trust my tongue, I'm safest with my mouth shut.
Mm. I, I prefer to not know than to pretend that I do know. Mm. There's safety in not knowing. And ultimately, what do we know? Really, what do we know? Mm. We talk about God as though we know what we're talking about. Who knows what? Nobody knows what God is, do they? Well, I'm not too sure we know what Jesus is. We have our versions, mm. but uh, how far does that go? Mm. Because isn't when you're dealing with the infinite, sooner or later you're you're going beyond what's describable. Well, you have to, don't you? I mean, our minds have evolved to deal with, you know, hunting woolly mammoths with stone-tipped spears and things. Uh, we and then now we have all our technology, but they, they've evolved to deal with rather limited and mundane things. And it's only in the last hundred years we've come to know that there are galaxies beyond our own and that, that we live in this vastly greater cosmos than anyone had ever imagined before. Um, and so even if we look at the physical universe, it vastly exceeds all previous imaginings and actually even exceeds our own imaginings now. We can have Hubble Space Telescope pictures on the internet, but most people don't look for more than a minute or two. And uh, it's overwhelmingly terrifying, the, the sheer size and space of the universe. Um, so I think that most people retreat into a much narrower, I do, you know, the, the, the poet Rilke said, you know, beauty is that terror which we can only just bear, uh, we're only just able to bear, that there's something overwhelming about the beautiful, the truly beautiful, and the limitless, the infinite. And, and I think that's one reason we retreat into familiar and much more limited territories. We're different though, aren't we? I think that's probably why I, I loved St. Cuthbert as a young man, was that he, uh, he, uh, I mean, he was, at one time he was, he was invited to be a bishop and he got, he, well, we don't know, I suppose he got fed up with it and went back to his solitude on the island where under the stars with the infinite sea around him. I suspect he, like me, felt infinitely comfortable under the infinite. I always felt much more comfortable under the stars than I did in the company of people. I never cared much for the company of people. That's really why I was never too keen on Jesus as a man. I felt more comfortable with Jesus as a, well as a farmer. I had sheep. And when I realized that Jesus was the Lamb of God, ah, then I took on a totally new meaning. I could understand that. I felt comfortable with that. But somehow being a man, as this way it was thrust on me as a man, in the same way that, that, that God was my father, I was a bit frightened of my father. I wasn't too keen on being with him. So I certainly wasn't too keen on being with God as a father. I felt much more comfortable under the sky, under the infinite sky. Oh, I could, I could, no problem with God out, out there. So it's a funny thing, isn't it? <laughs> we don't all fit the mold, do we? Well, you fit, a, you fit a mold, actually, one that um, I only came to know about recently. There's a chap called Nick Mayhew-Smith, who's written a wonderful book with a friend of mine called 
uh, Guy Hayward, called Britain's Pilgrim Places. And he's visited all these wonderful, often quite secret and hidden away, holy places in Britain. But he wrote another book last year called The Naked Hermit. And it's about Celtic hermits, including St. Cuthbert. And we know that St. Cuthbert used to pray in the cold water of the sea and uh, would be immersed in the water, standing up to his neck in cold water praying. Well, it turns out this wasn't a personal eccentricity, but lots of them were doing it. Uh, they were into, the Celtic hermits were into going to remote places away from, that's why these Irish saints lived on remote islands you could only get to on a coracle uh, a few days a year because the sea was so rough and hardly anyone could ever get there to disturb them. Um, and so these Celtic hermits fanned out into the remotest places, lived in really remote places, um, and the, their whole idea was that they were immersed in the natural world, and that that was part of their spiritual practice, to be away from people, actually, and immersed in the natural world, and literally immersed in water quite often, cold water. Yes, I didn't know about the cold water aspect. Well, I'd read about St. Cuthbert, and yes, that lovely occasion is described. But um, absolutely, <clears throat> and as a young man, I took to this Celtic tradition like a duck to water, and I loved visiting these these few piles of stones around our, the, the Welsh and Scottish coasts, Cornish coasts, where, where these men lived and sitting there myself and, and, and pretending, trying to be like them. Yes, I absolutely loved all that. Yes, that really spoke to me. Um, yes, a total immersion in, 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 in nature. And, yeah, I always thought of nature as the first, my first church, really. Yes. Yes, I, 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 and then, and then the bits of the Bible I always loved where, where it's, it's references to nature, which are an awful lot, animals and nature. I felt completely comfortable with that. It got me away from all the theological complexity about, about, um, Yes, it, it, it goes straight to the point. Talk references to the wind and fire and animals and the grass withereth and the flower fadeth. All that makes utter sense to me. Well, me too. I mean, I'm very... I, I've always been very strongly drawn to the natural world. It's one reason I became a biologist. Yes. Um, I haven't done the Wim Hof method, which is uh, a lot of people, including one of our sons, has done this Wim Hof method, which is a way of meditating in cold water. And the, what St. Cuthbert and other Celtic saints were doing, um, you know, in what we call the Dark Ages, um, is now undergoing an astonishing revival. There are people all over the country uh, doing this. And, um, and um, near where we live in Hampstead, there are swimming ponds on Hampstead Heath. And a lot of people, including our son, uh, Merlin, um, swim there all year round, you know, and, and swimming in cold water. And wild swimming and cold water swimming is undergoing a, a, a surge in popularity. So um, the, the, these particular practices, which might have seemed eccentric in the Dark Ages, are um, undergoing this amazing modern revival. Um, and St. Cuthbert's immersion in nature, literally an immersion in cold water, where you can hardly ignore the nature around you if you're in cold water, especially in the winter, and where he was doing it, in Lindisfarne, in the North Sea. Um, 
it's a, it creates an altered state of consciousness in itself. Um, and uh, so I think actually you're a, a kind of atavism uh, to, uh, in some ways, to a, a particular tradition. It seems to me that there have been people in the past who've been drawn, like you, in, to this way of life. And actually, I think there are more in the present, too. And I think that's, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing this, because, you know, anyone who's drawn to this path may think of themselves as peculiar and eccentric. But uh, the fact that you're doing it and have been doing it for such a long time um, is actually tremendously encouraging and reassuring. Well, I find it very encouraging and reassuring that so many people are discovering um, it, really, of which this cold water, getting into cold water and closeness to nature are signs. Um, anyone who practices long enough, which I, I mean quite a number of years, gradually comes to discover well, I suppose the very process of getting old, as is only, probably only too obvious to me, is that this physical body dies out. It is of limited duration and of limited ability, as is the mind. The mind isn't. The mind is a very variable creature, and and also in old age tends to lose its edge. <laughs> Even if it doesn't quite die out, it, it's not certainly not functioning very well. But, but spirit grows ever stronger, ever more alive, and you come to realize that that this physical mental world is really a fading dream. It's not as real as we think, and and as this, as it were, <coughs> loses its predominance, it becomes ever more obvious that I am spirit. I am ageless universal spirit. And this is the the truly operative source of all the rest. Everything else precipitates, as it were, crystallizes out of spirit. Spirit is the origin of which this world is a shadow of the real world. Beautiful though this world is, it's but a shadow of its divine origin. And this is, can be fully realized. I'm not talking just out of my head. This is realizable. Here now the reality is spirit. And all this talk about power and energy and all this thing, the real powerhouse is almighty God. This is the real <laughs> infallible source of energy. All this, all this business about, you know, trying to be nice to each other, loving your neighbor and human rights. The real origin of all this is most merciful God, because spirit has never hurt anybody. Look, it's surrounding us here, the everlasting arms. It's entirely benevolent. It's nothing but pure love. And it's this love that, that uh, can cope with all our contrary human ways. Almighty and most merciful God, have mercy upon us sinners. What a sinner! A sinner is simply someone that's turned away from the realization of this, become so artificial, so divorced from nature and what is natural, that that he's just lost the point, lost the meaning of life. Mm -hmm.
because above all, this is man-made, his natural spirit is the most natural thing in the world. It's our unnaturalness that we need to to uh, come back to being natural, feet on the ground, see what's in front of our noses. Simple, utter simplicity. That seems a wonderful conclusion, actually. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much it's been such a pleasure well thank you this is a, a real treat God bless you mm -hmm.